Uh, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it to Romans, the book of Romans, our old friend, chapter 12, Romans chapter 12. While you're turning to Romans chapter 12, um, I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, baseball season is just ending or has just ended for my family. We're very involved in baseball. My son plays and uh, my older son played for a number of years. I was a coach for a little while. It was actually only a one-year stint, and that was a good thing, I think, for all of us. Uh, my team was called the Blue Jays, which is very funny because I have a Blue Jays shirt. I'm not a Blue Jays fan, but I get to wear it around when the Blue Jays lose every year. And um, so I, I was um, the, 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 the assistant coach on the, like, 10-year-old Blue Jays. And uh, the 10-year-old Blue Jays had my son, who is, who is a pretty good player, and uh, my friend's son, who is the head coach, and his son was, uh, like, an ec- amazing player, okay? And then but see, besides those two guys, uh, we had a whole lot of other kids who were not as strong of players. Uh, some of them had some medical challenges. We loved our team. They were fantastic. Some of them had some medical challenges. Others had never played baseball before. Uh, very rarely would they catch the ball. I do remember on one occasion, one of the kids had lined up another kid about five feet from him and said, I'm going to pitch to you, right? Seriously, he's like five feet away, and this kid wound up, and he threw it and broke the kid's nose. So this is the kind of team we're dealing with here. So one of my most memorable moments was um, what used to happen was that my son and, and the other coach's son would have to play kind of up the middle of the field. One of the guys would be at shortstop, which is in the, kind of in the middle of the field, and the other guy would either be pitching or in center field so that if the ball went anywhere on the field, one of the two guys would run like crazy to get it. On this one occasion, the ball got hit by the other team and grounded to the shortstop, okay? My friend's son was there, and he picked the ball up, and he looked over to first base, and there was this boy there who had never played baseball before and had not caught the ball all year long. And he was, like, standing there, like, about seven feet off the base with his glove in the air, and it, like... So my friend's son made a decision, business decision in this moment, and he decided that it would be far better for him to just run himself straight across the diamond and try to beat the runner than throw it. So he did, and it was a foot race between the shortstop and the guy here. He lost, and he got over there, and the, and the first baseman, instead of saying, hey, why didn't you throw it to me, he patted the kid on the back and said, good job, right? <laughs> so there's a moral to the story. The moral to the story is in order for a team to properly function, every teammate must be capable of doing the job they're asked to do, yes? You know that in your workplace, you know that in, uh, in uh, sports teams, you know that in all, all over your life, and especially that's the case in the church. And what you're going to find in Romans chapter 12 is that being emphasized, that what God has done in his church is he has gifted every one of us with abilities. You shouldn't think too highly of yourself, but you also shouldn't think too lowly of yourself. God has gifted you with an ability that you have so that you can serve the church. And many of us just sit on those abilities, and it really does ruin it for everybody. We are basically standing at first base with our glove up in the air while everybody else is running around trying to win the game. 
So look, we're going to look at this passage together. Uh, You'll notice it's in the book of Romans. We have been studying the book of Romans off and on for, this is our fifth year, right? We are going to finish it this year. Amen. Right. Um, We will do a good chunk of it this fall, and then we'll take a break for the Christmas season, and we'll come back to it in the beginning of the the new year, finish it off, right? Praise, Praise Jesus. We are in the section of Romans, though, that is all about application. You're going to want to come and hear what Paul has to say in this back section of Romans. It's actually a fantastic finish to the book. So here's what I want to do today. I want to give you an, I want to give you an argument, Paul's argument in this passage. The passage is Romans 12, 1 to 8. Here's his argument. Three stages to it. Number one, you are graced. Number two... So think about, rightly about yourself. So you're graced, so think rightly about yourself. And thirdly, especially in relation to your gifts. You're graced, so think rightly about yourself, especially in relation to your gifts. Here's the first of those. You are graced, verses 1 to 2 of Romans chapter 12. Therefore, important word. Preachers always like to say, when you see a therefore, you should wonder what it's there for. It's built, it's built upon everything that came before. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We ended last year... On that passage, I preached a sermon on those two verses. It's a great passage of Scripture. Here's what I want you to see this time. I'm not going to go through the entirety of those two verses, but I just want you to see something really, really important. And it starts with that word, therefore, and then affixed to that, in view of God's mercy. The commands that follow from the Apostle Paul, and there's there's a lot. You should read through Romans 12. It's just like bullet point Commands, all of the commands that follow, all the things that you and I are called to do are predicated, are built upon the fact that God has graced us. The law, in other words, the commands of God follow the grace of God always. Always. This is what we call gospel logic. The mercy of God that leads to the offering of our bodies as living sacrifices, right? God shows the mercy, and we respond. We don't obey in order to gain approval from God. We obey because we've got approval from God. That's the gospel. All the commands are being done in response to grace. This, by the way, it's all over the scriptures if you have eyes to see. You'll find this, especially in the Old Testament, when, when God comes to the people of Israel, even when he comes and he gives them the law, you know, the law on Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, he predicates the giving of the law on what they've experienced already in terms of his grace. So you'll, you'll see Exodus chapter 20. So they, they've come at, when I say experiences because of his grace, I mean, they, they, God rescued them, came to them, rescued them, apart from anything they did, out of the land of Egypt. He, they crossed the Red Sea, something they could not do unless God was with them and made it happen. He drowned Pharaoh in the Red Sea. He brings them across. 
And now he's going to give them the law. And when he gives them the law, Exodus chapter 20, right? This is the beginning of the Ten Commandments. Listen to the first line of the Ten Commandments. Moses comes down from the mountain. He's got the tablets there. First line, Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Notice the order. He gets them all together. Here's the law. But before he says, okay, I got some things I need you people to do, he reminds them that before they're going to do this stuff, they should remember the grace. I saved you. Therefore, go and do. You get this also, Leviticus chapter 11. If you've read your Bible ever, Leviticus is what usually you get to at the kind of March of every year. I'm going to read the Bible in one year. You get it to March, and Leviticus kills you, <laughs> right? It's the, it's the listing of God's laws. But Leviticus 11, verse 45, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I'm holy. Hey, I get it. it's not, I need you guys to be holy, it's, remember, grace, my acting for you, apart from anything you've done, therefore, respond. Another one, Leviticus 19, 35. Do not use dishonest standards when measuring length, right? Don't cheat people when you're trying to sell things to them. Don't use dishonest standards when measuring length, weight, or quantity. Use honest scales and honest weights. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Why should you be honorable and have integrity in your business? Because I'm the one who saved you. Not because you, you get to earn something and like I'm going to be up there, oh, you get an extra credit star. Oh, I see all those good things you're doing. Maybe I'll welcome you into heaven one day. No, God has established justification for you. He's justified you before himself. Now go. And you find this in stories in the New Testament as well, that trying to, trying to illustrate this point. Remember the story about this little guy named Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. No? Yes, some of you remember this song, right? He's this little guy who's a... He was a tax collector, which means he was like the chief of sinners, really wealthy guy, wanted to see Jesus, so he climbed up a little tree. Remember, they wore robes those days, and so this was a very shameful thing for a very prestigious man to do, right, to climb up into a tree. Honorable men don't, don't do that, but he did, so he was excited about Jesus, climbed up there so he'd get a good look. Jesus stopped right under the tree, looked up to this guy who everyone thought was like the most wicked of sinners, collaborator with the Romans, despicable man, looks up and says, hey, Zacchaeus, they had not met before. Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house for lunch today. Now, in those days, going over to someone's house to eat was a sign of friendship, was a sign of acceptance. So the most wicked guy around, right? Donald Trump is in the tree. Right? And, and, and Zach, Jesus stops and says, yo, Trump, we're, you know, we're going to Earl's. So they go. And halfway through the meal, Zacchaeus stops and says, I got something to announce. 
I'm going to give away half of all the money I have, which is a significant amount. And if I've wronged anyone, which tax collectors, that's what they did, wronged them. Talk about measuring with dishonest scales. If I've wronged anyone, I will repay them four times the amount. What's happened here? Notice the order of events. Grace begets radical obedience. Yes? It didn't start with Zacchaeus saying, hey, Jesus, here's the stuff I'm going to do for you. I'm going to give away half my money. And then Jesus says, okay, I'll come over to your house then. No, grace leads to obedience. This is gospel logic. This is, this is the way it works. So, you know, if you want a hint, if you really want to follow Jesus, if you really want your heart to warm toward him, if you really want in your deepest sense to do what it is that he's called you to do, don't focus on the command as much as you focus on the grace. Remind yourself of where he's brought you from. Remind yourself of what he's done for you, and you will find overflowing in your spirit a desire to lay down at his feet, wash his feet with your hair and perfume, to get up in a tree and respond by giving away whatever. Radical giving, radical worship is the result of radical grace. So, my big point here, everything in Romans 12 and following then is predicated on Romans 1 to 11, where Paul talks about the grace that you received in Christ apart from works. Isn't it amazing what you've been given? Okay, so therefore, this is how you ought to live. So the, the, the rationale, the reasoning here is, okay, God has graced you, therefore, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice Well, what does that look like? Well, don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You used to live according to a a, a former manner of life, a former age. Now you've entered the kingdom of God. Let the kingdom of God mold your thinking. But in specifically what way, Paul? Here you go. Remember what I said? You are graced. That's the first one. Second, so think rightly about yourself. In what way should your thinking be changed? What's the first way in response to the grace of God? Verse three. For by the grace given me, he means there his apostolic authority, for the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, all you individuals out there, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. In accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. So the first mind renewal thing that should happen to you when you switch from the kingdom of this world and this age to the kingdom of God's dear son is that you should have a mind renewal about you. You shouldn't think as highly about yourself as you used to. You shouldn't be as focused on yourself as you used to. This command uh, to not think too highly of ourselves than we ought to is, let's be honest, it's really countercultural for us living in uh, the 21st century in, in, in Canada, is it not? 
Like if there's anything we are taught from a very early age these days, it's that you should be, you, you should be focused on yourself. You should have, and to use the language of our culture now, you should have high self-esteem. In fact, we have a process that we've built into our schools to try to lead kids to higher self-esteem. That's the problem, in fact, that we say is around us. And so I, I was, I'm a child of the 1980s. I remember when I was a kid getting trophies when I was a little boy. Uh, the beauty of a trophy when I was a little boy, when you played soccer or something, is that your friends didn't get it, right? So like, I got the trophy, and I'd go over to my friends, and I'd be like, hey, what's up, you know? I won the trophy. It says most valuable player, me. Your kids were, oh, I don't like you, but then they'd strive next year to get it, and then if they won it, they'd walk by. I'm sorry, I can't hear you with my trophy in my ear, that kind of thing, right? So you held it over everybody. I feel that that doesn't happen now. And of course, you know why, because we say it all the time, because everybody gets a trophy. I've been part of teams with my kids where at the end of the season, there's a pile of trophies. Like, we didn't win anything. We didn't win a game. But there's a pile of trophies, you know? And then the front one says, most encouraging. And the second one's like, most annoying. And then the, you know, most... <laughs> I got the most annoying, you know? Everybody, everybody gets a trophy, and that's, that's, that's different, right? And that change, actually, if you look at the history, that change actually happened in the 1980s. There was a real movement of self-esteem that started to be mocked, actually, in early days. If you are my age, you'll remember a guy named Stuart Smalley on Saturday Night Live. He used to sit in front of a mirror. It was Al Franken was the actor. He'd sit in front of a mirror, look at it, and say, and say these words, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. And we all, in the 90s, laughed at that. Like, oh, he's making fun of all that now. I've shown that to my kids before, and like, say, what's the joke? I don't understand. This is what we're supposed to do, right? We're supposed to think that we're great and amazing. Well, yeah, that's the way that my kids have been taught. Jean Twenge, in her wonderful little book, uh, Generation Me, she focuses on, on kind of the early stages of the millennial generation, who are awesome, by the way. I'm not trying to pick on them. We're all in this together. Um, she wrote this interesting little she was talking about the self-esteem culture, and she, she told this story. She said, uh, one Austin, Texas father was startled to see his five-year-old daughter wearing a shirt. So five years old, kindergartner. Five year, uh, a shirt that announced, quote, I'm lovable and capable. So the T-shirt. All the kindergartners, he learned, recited this phrase before class. I'm lovable and I'm capable. And they all wore the shirt to school on Fridays. It seems the school started a bit too young, however, because the child then asked, Daddy, all the kids are wondering, what does capable mean? <laughs> Sorry, some of you get that later. Right? You shouldn't be... If you're, you're not capable if you don't know what capable means. That, that's part of the problem. But we have our movies that teach us this sort of thing over and over again, right? Our, our movies about self-esteem, the kids' movies. So you just go to watch any Disney movie these days. That's really the... The focus, you, you can be whoever you want to be and don't let anyone else tell you different. And all the bad people in the world are trying to tell you to conform to something. And all the good people in the world are the ones who let you be whatever it is that you want to be without any, without any limits. And so movies like The Greatest Showman, a song in that film called This Is Me, the chorus, this is, I'm not going to sing it, this is me. Look out because here I come. I'm marching to the beat I drum. I'm not scared to be seen. I make no apologies. This is me. Or Dear Elsa in Frozen. 
Let it go. (laughs) It's funny how some distance makes everything seem small when the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go, let it go. Can't hold it. Yeah. Right, but you see, you see what, I'm, what I'm talking about. It's all around us. It's, it's the air we breathe, self-esteem. Now, we have things called pride festivals now. Just think about the name. Pride festivals. Pride is not something that you should be bothered by. Pride is something that you should demonstrate. Don't stand over against pride. I can be whatever I want to be, whenever I want to be it. No one can tell me any different. And yet scripture, to be honest, the scripture sees pride as a problem. I mean, it ruins, it ruins our relationships, doesn't it? Shows up all over the place in our lives, even in, even in small ways. So my wife, sometimes she puts this spoon, she, used, she sometimes takes the stickers off of apples and sticks them on the thing. I've told you about that before. One of the other things that drives me nuts is that she, <laughs> she, t- <laughs> she takes this spoon. She's a coffee drinker. I'm not a coffee drinker. She takes the spoon every morning. She mixes her coffee and she drops the spoon in a puddle of coffee that's from the spoon on the table. And I will come out and there's the spoon every day. <laughs> the, sp- the spoon is there. And I, there have been days where I've stood over there, I've stood over the top of that spoon, crossed my legs like this, and just had to breathe deeply. And do you know what's going on in my mind at this point? Seriously, it's actually what's going on in my mind. Do you not know who I am? Do you, do you not know the important places that I need to be today? And here it is that you're requiring me to pick up your snotty old spoon, put it in the dishwasher, all three feet down there, Throw it in that dishwasher and then take a, a cloth and wipe the spoon up and then put the cloth back. What is, what is wrong with you? Do you understand how valuable my time is? Do you understand how important I am? Have you ever thought about how much pride goes into the things that you get irritated about? Why is this person doing this to me? I, uh, this lane is mine. Dare you come in front of me? You use that finger, don't you? <laughs> right? I actually was at a, I was at a parking lot the, like a year ago, and I was walking out from, from a, a restaurant at a meeting, and I was walking out to my car, and I heard these two men yelling. What had happened is that uh, this one guy, this young guy, had uh, had the door open to his car, and he was getting stuff in there, and the other guy had, had to wait, this older gentleman and his wife, they had to wait to pull in, and finally got sick of it, and so they just pulled right in, right? And the guy was like, whoa, and the door was open, and so the guy who had the door open when the older gentleman got out and had his cane with him said, what's your problem, man? Can't you see that I'm standing here? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you, young man? He started shaking the things. Words that shouldn't come out of these men's mouth are coming out of these men's mouth. They're yelling at each other. When the wife gets out, she starts beaking with the other guy. Oh my goodness. Why? Why? Because how dare you infringe upon my kingdom here, right? Our, listen, our relationships are a mess. And you say, why? Why are relationships a mess? Because you and I think too highly of ourselves. 
more highly of ourselves than we ought. Pride is a problem. I shouldn't think more highly of myself than I ought. that's, That's what Paul's commanding here. That's the way your mind needs to shift. But, 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 but. Note, the solution isn't to go to the opposite extreme for Paul, is it? He does not say, don't think very highly of yourself. In fact, you should think that you're awful and terrible. No. He says that you should think, did you notice the line? With sober judgment. You should see, think of yourself with sober judgment. Because let's be honest, there, there is some truth in the self-esteem movement, yeah? There, there is. There are people who stand and look in a mirror and are despised. They despise themselves. Oftentimes shows up in cutting and it shows up in the way that they, some eating disorders and a number of other things. They just sicken to their stomach and those are issues that need to be dealt with. There's something going on. Makes you think that you're despicable and horrible. You don't see yourself as made in the image of God, there to reveal his glory. So there's a half truth in all that, right? You don't want to throw that out. There is a value in human beings and God has made us individually, like I said, to reflect his glory. So it's not to turn away from yourself and say, oh, I'm terrible and I'm horrible. It's actually to think soberly. Think about that for a minute. So when I hear sober thinking, I'm thinking balanced thinking. Here's why I'm saying balanced. Uh, I was watching an Instagram video of a guy who was drunk getting his, this is why Instagram exists. So you watch videos of a guy getting drunk getting tacos from the drive-thru at Taco Time or whatever, Taco Bell. So he gets this on his bike and he's riding his bike with his tacos and he falls over, you know? And then he gets back up and he rides a little ways longer and he falls over. And, and that's a good image for what drunkenness is. It's unbalanced. What do the police do when they pull the person over? Okay, well, I'm going to have you walk this line. And what happens if you're drunk? Because being drunk mean, means being unbalanced. That's what Paul means here. He's saying that you need to be balanced in your, in your thinking, Christians. Think neither too highly nor too lowly of themselves. You are a sinner who's been chosen by God, made in his image. He sings over you, he delights in you, but you're a sinner, wicked, deserving of judgment, and he gave his son for you. You see how that works? Neither too highly nor too lowly. We're not as good as we think we are, nor are we useless. Now, I'm using the word useless there for, for a reason. Because Paul now is going to jump to the third part of this. I told you that the rationale here is you are grace, number one. Number two, so think rightly about yourself in response to that grace, right? Have balanced thinking, neither too high or too low. And third, then, especially in relation to your gifts. Especially in relation to your gifts. Look at verse four. For For just as each one of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. It's an illustration. It's a a good one for Paul. Okay, picture your your body. And he's saying uh, the church and its individual members are just like a, a body. And so some of us are fingers, Right? We like to point out things in others. Just kidding. So with fingers, some have some are toes, some are knees, right? Some are thumbs, 
Ezra's the ear hair. I mean, come on, right? Because he looks funny, he's hard to get rid of. Um, kidding. You know, one of the hardest things I ever had to deal with it, it, it physically in my life, actually, was uh, came all of a sudden. I was, must have been uh, 30 years old. You know, there's a point in your life where you realize that you're getting older and you don't think it should happen at 30. But I was 30 years old. I remember getting out of a car, right? And I turned my foot one way. I was just getting out of the backseat of the car, right? I wasn't scaling Mount Everest. I was getting out of the car and I turned my foot this way and all of a sudden my back went bing. And I, I just like... Every part of me went stiff, and I just rolled straight back. My wife came around the side. My leg was sticking straight out. She said, are you okay? I can't move my back. So they had to drive me home. I crawled, literally crawled into the house, laid on the couch for the next three or four days. And I remember saying to my wife at one point, who knew that a back was so important, right? Because when you're in your 20s, you're thinking to yourself, I don't need to do anything with this. This back's going to be strong forever and 30 years old, and it goes out. Any of you have back pain, you're like, yes, it's debilitating. And that's the image that Paul's trying to play on here. He's trying to say, you, you do see how every part of the body, right, every player on the field is necessary in order for the entirety of the team or the entirety of the body to function properly. Everybody needs to do their part. And if everybody's doing their part and doing it with vigor, imagine what that church can do. Like, if you take the gift that you've been given by God's grace, you don't think too highly of yourself. I'm the only gift here that's only, I'm the only valuable one. Only thumbs matter. If you don't think too highly of yourself, but you think of yourself with sober judgment, I am part of a greater team, and I'm responsible to press in to whatever it is that the Lord has given me, give my full strength to it. And everyone's doing that. Man, you imagine what the church can do. So use that, I guess, this point here in the end, right? Don't think too highly of yourself. You're one part of many. But God has specially gifted you to benefit your brothers and sisters in Christ. Use that gift. And he goes into this list, right? Verse 6, we have different gifts. According to the grace given each of us, if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. You all have something. This is not an exhaustive list of the gifts. You can go other places in the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4. You'll find other gifts listed, but the ones he lists lists here are are valuable. Let me just run through what what he means by these words. He says, uh, prophecy. If your if you're gift is prophecy, then you should prophesy in accordance with, with your faith. So New Testament prophecy is a little different than Old Testament prophecy. Uh, New Testament prophecy does have some forth, uh, foretelling aspects to it, you know, like this is going to happen in the future. You see this in the book of Acts where you get this guy Agabus who shows up and says to Paul, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, they're going to wrap your arms in a belt. They're going to bind you. So I'm telling you the future here. And he was right. He was right. So sometimes that happens in the New Testament, although it's not as, that that's kind of prophecy is not as common as, as you might think. 
More frequently, prophecy involved the proclaiming to the church information God had spontaneously revealed for the church's edification. There's this actually image in 1 Corinthians 14 where the church is gathered like this, and they're having sharing time. And one person stands up and says, you know what, I was just sitting there, and I... I sense that the Lord wants us to know that his love for us is this grand, and I had an image of, you know, whatever the image is, and, and then somebody else gets this stirring from the Spirit, and they stand up and say, oh, hold on, I, I, I feel the Spirit saying this, right? What's going on here? Well, it's not foretelling so much as it's forthtelling. It's an encouragement for the, for, the, for the church's edification, it's spontaneous. I didn't plan it. It's just that the Spirit has brought something spontaneously to mind. And this kind of revelation from God was not held on the same level as the apostles' doctrine. It, it wasn't. And I know that because you have passages like 1 Thessalonians 5.20, which says, uh, don't treat prophecies with contempt, meaning don't shut off from them, but test them all. Hold on to what's good and reject every kind of evil. Some of the stuff that they're going to say is going to be really edifying and true, and some of the stuff is not as true as what Scripture would teach you, right? So I was, I was at a conference a number of uh, months ago, actually, and I was sitting in the, kind of toward the top. I was one of the speakers at the conference, and I was sitting at the top, and I was kind of hiding. <laughs> and this woman came out um, in front of the stage and said, hey, before we do our next section, I just, can I, is Jeff Bucknam here? You know, I'm, no. So I raised my hand. She said, you know what? I, I, we just met earlier today, and I just I was in prayer, and the Lord, I just feel like I need to share that this is what the Lord has, has, has said, and he, she shared what it was, and a good chunk of it was very encouraging and edifying. She said later to me, hey, you know, take, it's like, it's like bones and fish, <laughs> like, there's some pieces there that might not be on, but I'm just trying to convey to you what I think the Lord was saying in that moment. I thought, that's great. That's exactly right. Here's a woman who's not burying that gift, is not also being arrogant, thus saith the Lord, <laughs> but is understanding how this gift should function. That's what Paul is saying, that some of you gifted in prophecy. Share the edification that the Spirit brings about. Some serving, you notice that there? These are kind of the behind-the-scenes support and organizer people the people without whom nothing would ever happen, right? Our HR director and my, my executive sister, her name is Val here. She runs the church, just so you know. She props all of us up. Carrie, one of the others, they prop all of us up. If I asked Carrie Clausen to get up in front of us right now, and, you know, this is Carrie, she would not, she'd hide behind that screen up there and say, no, you will not get me out there. Val, similarly, some people are gifted in serving, and what's saying is don't, be, don't think that you're not important because you're not out in front. God has gifted you in this way to uplift and help others, so take joy in that. Press into that. Teaching. That's what I'm doing. Communication of apostolic doctrine. Be careful with it, right? Press into it. Encouraging. You see that one there? That word, uh, encouraging, mean, means exhorter, or in our more modern parlance, a hype man. Do you love hype guys? No? Freddie's a hype man. If you know Freddie, he's around here. One of my favorite hype men who you would not understand what that word means at all is uh, Frank Martins used to be the, one of the, he was the interim uh, lead pastor here and was a care pastor at Northview for a number of years. Whenever I see Frank, he's the nicest man I've ever met, right? 
You know, I see him a few, you know, a few times a year. He attends our East Abbotsford campus, and I'll walk up to Frank, and he'll go, Jeff, you know, like, yeah, you were back from the dead, you know, or whatever. You've met people like this who just love to see you. I love seeing Frank. Sometimes I just want to drop by his house. Jeff, you know? One time, uh, years ago, there was, um, there was this guy preaching. He was a visiting preacher, and he came, and he preached a sermon, and Frank's job was to kind of like kind of like be, be his help along the way. And the guy preached on our Saturday night service and it wasn't a very good sermon. So the guy sat down and Frank pulled up next to him. This is a story has been told through the years here at Northview. Frank pulled up next to him, put his arm around him and said, brother, do you have another word for us? Like, do you have another sermon? And you, that one wasn't fantastic. And the guy was like, oh, sure, great. That's fine, yeah. Didn't notice at all, because that's what Frank is. Frank could be telling you the worst possible news, but you'd be like, I love this news and this man, right? Encouragers. Man, I love encouragers. You want to spend your time with them, these, these, these hype people. Giving. You notice what it says there? If it's giving, then give, give generously. Some are gifted with sharing what they have. By the way, it's not only the rich. The rich have more to share, but there are lots of people gifted in giving who God has not given all that much, but he wants you to give what you got. Generously, that word, means sincerely. You're supposed, to, you're supposed to give. If you're gifted in giving, don't do it with ulterior motives. You know what I mean by ulterior motives, right? Well, Jeff, I'd love to give to the church as long as the service times remain the same, if you know what I mean. <laughs> you know, or a little change happens in the church and you have a meeting. I thought we were clear when I gave the significant donation to the... Right? If you're gifted in giving, just give. You're giving it to the Lord. Not to me, not to Northview, not to your friend. Oh, I don't like what they're doing with it. Doesn't matter. Your job is to give. Give to the Lord. Generously, leading. So old word in New Zealand called mana. I use it sometimes around. There's people who have mana. It's a great word. We should use it. You, you know what mana means. It's, it's the person when they walk in the door that everyone's just sort of like, oh, our leader, the leader is here. You know, people who kind of got that thing, they call Maori, they call that mana. These, this, is what, this is what leaders are. These are the people in Paul's day who probably ended up leading the church. They're supposed to lead diligently, the word means eagerly or zealously. In other words, don't be reluctant to lead. Well, I don't want to be leading here because... No, jump in, man. You've been gifted with the ability to lead. Don't let somebody else do it. See if you can be there and helping, showing mercy. It's visiting the sick, providing for the poor, caring for the elderly. It says you're supposed to do it with cheerfulness, probably because it gets tiring. Dealing with people who require mercy. But you've been gifted in this way, yes? Everybody's got a gift. You say, well, how, how do I know the gift that I've got? Here's my secret answer. You ready? It's not to take a test. You, you can do that. It's great. Take a class. Go ahead. But I, here's the easy, quick way. Ready? What makes you mad? What makes you mad in the church? You do, Jeff. Okay. <laughs> mm -mm. When something is not done right, what's the thing that you go home and go, <laughs> my wife, if, she, if there's somebody being left out of any group anywhere, she'll go home, these people, they should be 
my wife has got a significant gift of showing mercy. I've, I've come across leaders who walk, or people who walk out of meetings, and the meetings have been led by artists. And they come out of the meetings, and they're like, oh, I'm going to kill every last one of those people. <laughs> right? They, they talk and talk. And, oh, I feel nothing got done. And then usually I'm like, oh, you're a leader. They drive you nuts, don't they? Right? That's why I don't meet with artists. <laughs> Or if I go to a church and the, and the sermon is like, oh, I think to myself, oh my goodness, these people, they got out of bed or they showed up late in the evening and they came and they are sitting there. You know how many troubles they went through to get there? Give them the word, man, and all you're doing is giving the slop. To... My wife has to say, settle, settle down, you know. What makes you angry? That's probably where you're gifted. Look, the point is whatever that gift is, Use it boldly. That's how you respond to the grace of God. Use it boldly. So let me just finish with this one last little thing. Okay, my wife and I, we were riding on um, my brother-in-law's jet ski. He lives in, they live in Bellingham. We were there a uh, summer ago. That, my wife, we're not jet skiers, but we got on that thing, and uh, I started going, and she was on the back, and of course, I started going, and I was like, ooh, this has got a lot of power to it. So I started to push it faster and faster, and she's screaming her head off, oh, stop, stop, you know, I'm going to divorce you. She didn't, she didn't say that. Anyway, we, I slowed down in the water, and so then we went putt-putt across the lake and then turned and came putt-putt back, and at the end, she said, wasn't that nice? <laughs> and I said, okay, okay, listen, I'll be back in just a minute. And as soon as she got off that thing, I just went crazy around the lake. Okay, so here's, here's what I'm trying to tell you. Be more like me and less like my wife. <laughs> you, listen, God has given you a very powerful thing. I don't know what it is. It might be listed here. It might be something else. And if you're going putt-putt around the lake with that thing, shame on you. You're that kid at first base with their, stop it. Stop it. This church, every church is going to need you. We need you. Kingdom needs you. It's your response to his grace. So press into it. Let me pray for you. Father, I'm so thankful for this passage, Father, for the book of Romans and how practical it is. And I pray in the days to come, Lord, you'll help us. Help us to see all the many ways, Lord, that we are called to respond to the grace that is in Christ. But help us never to lose sight of that order. It's the grace that motivates the obedience, not the other way around, Father. I'm so thankful for that and for your action on our, be on our behalf. Fill us with your spirit now. Help us to make it a reality in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.